There is an old story about a man who had what he thought was the future figured out. By some sort of act of magic, he had received a newspaper, the New York Times, from the future. And as he started reading it and realizing it, that it was the New York Times from a year ahead, he realized, oh, how fortunate I am. With this newspaper, I can see all the stocks that go up and down. I could see who wins the Super Bowl. I could bet on games. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be wealthy. This is amazing. As he continued to read through the newspaper, he came across another section, and his mood changed. For in that section, he got to the obituaries, and he saw his name in one of the columns that he was going to die in the next year. So all of a sudden, the joy that he had from the prospect of getting wealthy drops, and he goes into despair, realizing that he was going to die. Um, that's actually not a true story, just in case you're wondering. But uh, it, it, there, there's this reminder of death, that death does something to us. It puts life into perspective. And, and it, what we value as we consider death and as we consider um, what we do with our life, what we value um, comes into to focus. And uh, we're in a series right now called The Currency of the Kingdom. And we've been talking about how the currency is this idea of, of what we attribute value to. When it comes to God's economy, when it comes to what God values, it's very different than the world's economy. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about these values and, and, and what, it, what it means uh, to, to be good stewards in God's economy. And tonight I want to look at a, a story that takes place in Luke chapter 12. And Tyler opened the series up with this story to kind of set the framework for the series. I want to unpack the story tonight, though. So if you have your Bibles, you can... Turn with me to Luke 12, and we'll start in verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. It's a story that could be humorous and serious. Um, it's, a, it's a parable, which means there's a principle here about this economy of the kingdom, the currency of the kingdom. And it has to do with wealth, possessions, resources, and money. And you think, all right, here we go, another sermon on money. 
I recently read uh, that in Scripture there are over 500 verses on prayer. You would think that's a lot. Scripture's trying to get us to pray. There's over 500 verses on faith. That's good. That's what this is all about. There's over 2,000 verses on money. There's 16 parables of Jesus on this topic. In fact, one out of 10 verses in the New Testament deals with it. If you would look at Jesus' teaching, it's something like 25% of it deals with resources. And I think the reason why, and if you read through the teachings of Jesus, he never asks for money from anybody. He understands that in this world, this is one of the things that is going to be competing for our heart. It's going to be competing for our identity. It's going to be competing for our security, our worth. Maybe more than anything, this, this is something that we, we get wrapped up in. And, and our money is not something that is evil, and it's not something that is good. It's just something that can grab a hold of our heart, and it's also something we could leverage for good. But tonight, when we talk about the currency of the kingdom, here's kind of the premise. Is the, the big idea is that, that generosity, what we'll find, generosity leads to a life that is truly life. The kind of life that Jesus offers us comes from generosity. And that's different than sometimes the way the world tells us we experience truly life by accumulating, by getting more stuff, by having more possessions, by having more fun, by partying, you know, all of this. In the economy of the kingdom, generosity actually meets that deep, that, that, that deep need of, of trying to live a life of contentment and fulfillment. It comes from this idea of being generous. Uh, one of the analogies I use every time we talk about this topic is the analogy of, of the Dead Sea. When you think about the Dead Sea and the Holy Lands, the Dead Sea is uh, this lake that rivers flow into, but nothing flows out of it. And so because of that, it's just the stockpile of thousands of years of minerals that have come from the rivers that flow into it. And because nothing ever leaves, because nothing ever flows out of it, it has created this ecosystem. Well, it's not an ecosystem. Nothing can live in the Dead Sea, not animal or plant because of the minerals have just been, have, have completely clouded the water. And people that swim in it would say, like, it's so dense that you almost, like, float in it. And, and I love this analogy when we think about generosity, because we have resources coming our way. We have gifts that we, we work hard for. We have gifts that we uh, are, are given and are blessed. And when those stop with us, when they don't flow out of us, they just build up inside of us. The same kind of culture of uh, ecosystem of the Dead Sea happens inside of our soul. There's this like mineral buildup that instead of life flourishing with this great ecosystem, it gets bogged down. Generosity allows it to flow out of us to other people. So I want to unpack this story, starting in uh, verse 13, set up the context, look at some of the things that are happening, and then what we, can, what we can draw from it. Verse 13 says, again, this is how the story starts, someone in the crowd, a person approaches Jesus and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, leading up to this part, Jesus is telling his disciples what it means to be faithful in the midst of persecution. And they're having this really serious conversation. And then this person comes in and interrupts with this question that has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. So already it's kind of like this, oh, whoa, where'd you come from? And like maybe a little bit of a lack of awareness. I don't know. But this guy comes with this agenda. He comes to Jesus. And the question that he's asking, the reason he's asking Jesus is because in this time period, going back to Old Testament law, good Jewish people would follow the Torah, and they had these inheritance laws. And so if you are a son and you have brothers, 
uh, you are inheriting something from your father, land, possessions, and it gets divided up depending on where you are in the birth order, how many brothers you have. But every now and then, you would have a father who would say, this is going to be a joint inheritance, and I'm not going to pick favorites. And, you know, we have olders and youngers, but I'm just going to give it to all of you. That Here's your inheritance. And there becomes a dispute between the brothers of which part's mine and which part's yours. And I don't want to be in this relationship where there's this joint thing happening. I want my own thing. And so just the, the, the question that he comes to Jesus with is, you're, you're an expert on the law. You tell my brother what I deserve. There's this breaking of relationship where he cares more about getting what's his than having this joint share with his brother. And some of us, you have a brother and you'd be like, oh yeah, I get that. Boundaries. Boundaries are good, right? But for him, it's not just boundaries. He wants nothing to do. He, he's asking for something to be divided away from his brother. And he comes to Jesus with this agenda. And he calls him teacher, but he doesn't say, what do you think about this? He says, he has a demand for Jesus. Tell him what's mine. There's this agenda that he has with Jesus, which that's like a whole different sermon. Have you ever come to Jesus with an agenda? I know I have, but he has something going on inside of his heart that Jesus spots almost right away. And Jesus sees right through the question. And here's Jesus' response. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Well, I mean, Jesus is like, he's an expert in the law. He should not, he's like, why, why are you coming to me with this? And then he said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. That's his response. That's his answer. That's not him like, oh, tell me more about it. He sees through this guy's heart and he responds this way, which exposes the greed in this guy's heart. Now, if you're this person that's asking the question, you've interrupted the serious discussion that Jesus is having, I can't imagine what he's thinking right now, like, uh-oh, like, he was probably thinking, I'm going to put Jesus on the spot because everyone's going to know this is happening between my brother and my brother's going to be embarrassed about it and he's got it rule in my favor and it's, like, backfired on him. Like, when I, when I hear the story, I think of, like, that, the, the, the Homer Simpson meme where he's, like, backing into the bushes, like, trying to escape, you know, the situation. Like, this must become incredibly awkward for him as Jesus sees really what his motives are. And then Jesus has this line where he says, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, there's something more important. And, and what I would say when we talk about that, like experiencing life that is truly life that Jesus teaches about it, abundance of possessions does not lead to that kind of life. The abundance of our possessions doesn't lead to life that's truly life. And Jesus is calling this out that this isn't where the life is found. In fact, the more you try to get life, to experience life, to experience your fulfillment through your possessions or your inheritance, you're going to be left even more discontent. The Romans had this old proverb that talked about what happens with greed, and they would say it's almost like the more money you get, the more you want. It's this insatiable thirst that you have, and it's like drinking salt water. The more you drink it, the thirstier you get. They had this understanding that that's you, the, the more you get, the more thirsty you get. The same thing that happens with, with our possessions. This insatiable thirst. And then Jesus breaks out into this parable, this kingdom story, this principle that he has. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. 
And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. That's always like a good problem to have. Like all this, man, all this margin, what do I do with it? This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. What's so wrong with that? That sounds great. That sounds wonderful. But Jesus is calling this out, this person that we find out he he calls him a fool because of his thinking in this parable. And as Jesus is is exposing greed and talking about the foolishness of this person, what we find is that the problem isn't with the man's individual wealth in this parable. The problem is with the self-absorption of this man. He never saw beyond himself in this story. He breaks into this thing called self-talk. Like he, he, he's got this abundance. His crops have, have, have created this, this amazing margin in his life. And he's wondering, what am I going to do about it? And you start to hear his self-talk take, take over. In fact, read this again and, and, and look at all the times he, he uses the word I and my in this story. Verse 16 says, And he told them this parable, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store up my surplus of grain, and I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. So in these like four verses, he uses the word I six times, and he uses the word my five times. This self-talk takes this, this rich farmer all of a sudden. He, he, he has this great blessing come into his life. And he has no one to process it with but himself. He's, I heard one, one, one commentator said he's aggressively self-centered. He never once says, I wonder what God wants me to do with this. This is an amazing blessing. He never gives thanks to God for this blessing. He never gives credit to any of the people that are working to get this harvest. He never talks to family members, never mentions any friends. He never thinks, I wonder if maybe this blessing came for for me to do something for the community. It's just all about what do I want to do with my thing. And this self-talk takes place. And we, we read that as, you know, in, in our culture where we're very individualistic and we're, we're very self, you know, we're independent and we're, we're self-starters and we're like, it can't be all that bad. Remember, th- this is a strong group culture where everybody lives in community. You know your neighbors. Most of your family lives on your street, maybe if not in your house. Why is this man not processing with anyone else? My guess is that he doesn't have anyone else to process with because he probably has isolated himself with his own self-absorption, with his own self-centeredness. He may be super successful in farming, but he's very poor relationally. And Jesus says the problem isn't that he has an abundance. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is his self-absorption. He can't see beyond himself on what to do. Then the other problem would be not that the man has an abundant margin in his business, but he has a lack of mission for that that business. He doesn't know what to do with it. He never saw beyond this world. 
with the gifts that God had given him. He never sees beyond himself, and he never sees beyond the world. Like, he's like, oh, this is it, great. I'm just going to sit back, kick back. You know, with, with me hoarding all this, like, whatever's happening around, if people aren't doing as well, they've got to come to me. That creates more dependence on me. That creates more wealth for me. I'm just going to sit, sit back and, and relax and enjoy life. And again, you, you say, what? That can't be all that bad, right? But no, no, he's been entrusted with this. He's been given this. And he has no vision for anything beyond his own world, beyond this world. The story goes on to say, in verse 9, he says, I'll say to myself, you, in some translation, he says, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But then God said to him, you, fool, this very night your very life may be demanded from you. There's this little play on words there where this, this self, this, this you, this word you, if you're reading it in the original context, it's this Greek word that is, uh, uh, it's where we get the word psyche. It's like psyche, I think is what it is in Greek. But we get the word psyche. So he's like, psyche, psyche you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. And, and then God says, you fool, this very night your life maybe demanded you. From you, So they, there's this little play on words where he's like, I've got it made. And God says, no, your life isn't made. And he's like, I'm set for years. And God says, no, this could all end tonight. There's something temporary about this. He has no vision beyond this world for his own stuff. And then God calls him a fool. Like that's, that's a pretty harsh word for, for God to call someone, right? A fool. Like that's, can you imagine, hey, the, because uh, this is a God of grace, this is a God of second chances, this is a God of love, this is a God that will do anything for us, and here there's this rebuke about this person for how they're living. Again, when you look at the word fool and you start to break it down, uh, some of the different meanings is that there's this, it's without inner perspective as it regulates behavior, so again, there's no awareness here. Uh, it, it, it's lacking perspective because it's short-sightedness, Lacking the overall picture needed to act prudently. Uh, unperceptive is a, another definition of this. Describes someone lacking true moderation because they fail to grasp cause and effect relationships. There's a willful ignorance in understanding what prompts inevitable effects on other people. This person is someone who has no regard for others or even God. The Greek version of the, the Psalms. The word fool is the same, the same word that's used here. It describes the atheist who said in his heart, there is no God in Psalm chapter 14, where fool literally means without a sense of something else, without a sense of God, without a sense of community, without a sense of mission. It's a person that is just completely self-absorbed. And then the end of the story, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. It's a harsh teaching. Jesus is going right towards the heart of something that I think plagues all of us as people. When you look at the fool, it's, it's someone who has, they've, they've placed all of their security in those possessions. They have this lack of, of community with others and what other people could need. They have no sense of thinking, I wonder if anyone else would, would benefit from this gift and this blessing that I've received. There's no gratefulness in this fool's heart to God that, that they would see life as a gift and everything that I've been given is I'm a steward of what God has given me. 
There's no purpose that could be used to leverage for, for God's kingdom. And all of it could just be taken away so quickly. Generosity allows us to live life to the fullest. It keeps us from being the self-absorbed. There's this passage that Paul wrote to the early church in 1 Timothy 6.18. Where he says these words, verse 17, starting there. Command those who are rich in this present world. And you think, oh, rich, that's like the Warren Buffetts of the world. But command those who are rich in this present world, that's all of us. When you look at, at our pers- this perspective of, of global citizens, what we have here, if you're watching this on a screen, you're rich. If you drove here in a car, you're rich. When you, when you consider what, what wealth looks like in the world, we're, we're pretty blessed here. We have pretty good lives. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Just like the story of the fool. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. He wants us to experience the goodness of these gifts, but he wants our hope to be in him, not the gifts. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Our God is good. He wants us to experience the goodness of his blessings here. He doesn't want us to put our hope in those things, but he wants us to use those things to build up treasure that's eternal. When we're generous with the gifts that God gives us, we experience this type of life that is truly life, life that is connected with something else. There's a number of reasons to be generous. I want to name a few of them now that I've experienced in my life. But generosity leads us to life that is truly fulfilling. It's a currency of the kingdom. Generosity draws me closer to God. Here's what I found. It draws me closer to God because the things that I spend my resources on, whether it's time, whether it's my money, I have a certain value for. It has, what, what we spend our, our, our time on, it reveals what, what our deepest affections are. There's a verse that says, where your treasure is, your heart will be as well. We value where our wallet goes. And when I and generous towards the things of God, towards his kingdom, it draws me closer in relationship to him. I don't do it to make him happy. I don't, I don't do it to appease him. I don't do it because I think there's some sort of karma rule that's going to happen. I do it because communion and relationship. As I'm generous towards God, as he said, for those who are rich towards God, it, 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 it creates that experience where we encounter his presence in deeper ways. Generosity also honors God. I mentioned earlier, everything in this world and in our culture is fighting for your resources, is competing for your resources. And when we're generous towards God, when we're rich towards God, what we're saying is that you are king of our life. You are our God. You are where our worship is is directed. And all of these other things in life that are good but are fighting for our affection and our resources and our 
Those are nothing compared to you. We want to honor you first and foremost with our generosity. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, money flows effortlessly to that which is a God. Our, our money flows to the things that we idolize, that we put our hope in, that we put our fulfillment in, that we put our pleasure in. But when we're generous towards God, we're honoring him first and foremost in this life. Generosity also increases happiness or a blessedness. We see this in Acts chapter 20 when they're quoting the words of Jesus where they say, it's more blessed to give than receive. You could read Psychology Today. There's all sorts of articles about what generosity does for our own hearts, it creates an experience of happiness, of blessedness, of joy. Because as humans, we're actually wired to, to, to have more of a fulfillment when we're giving to others. Generosity increases happiness. Generosity also expands influence. I like this one. It expands our influence when we are generous to others. Proverbs 11, 24, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. He says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. And this is one of those principles of the kingdom. When you're, when you're being generous and you're giving something away, it's actually enlarging your being. It's enlarging your heart, your soul. And even though you're losing something, you're gaining something more. It, it expands influence in this world. Another passage says, Jesus is talking about, he says, those who are entrusted with little and are faithful will be entrusted with a lot. They'll be entrusted with more. There's something about our world that expands as we're generous to others. Also, generosity, uh, two more. It connects our hearts with eternity. We are eternal beings. We're part of an eternal kingdom. And when we are, get, are generous towards God, when we are rich towards God, it connects us with, with, with the kingdom of God, which is eternal. My wife and I have made a decision in our life to be generous towards the ways of God because we have this deep conviction about eternity, that we want to give to things that would connect with people that we may not know about until we get to heaven someday. That we're giving to things that are expanding God's kingdom that allows for us to connect with people in eternity. That we're, we're planting seeds now and investing in things that in eternity we'll get to experience the fruit of. That's something that, that is hard to do. It's something that changes how we journey through this life. So for us, we, we do this old spiritual discipline called tithing. Tithing of taking 10%, giving the first fruits back to God. This is an old practice that comes from the Old Testament. All the way back in Genesis chapter 14, there's a story with Abraham, and he runs into this guy named Melchizedek and gives him a tenth of, of, of uh, an offering, and, and there's this whole story around Melchizedek. But you, you see this this principle, this, this discipline that is established with God and his people all the way back in this Genesis story continues through the Old Testament. These offerings that God's people give back to God. Uh, when, when we get to the, the Jesus, like this, this idea of tithing has been so manipulated by the, the ritualistic religious culture. Jesus says, make, it's really about your heart. 
It's really about where your heart is at, but don't neglect this as well. When you see the new church, they're not only uh, just, they're, they're giving away, they're incredibly generous to each other, to the things of God. There's this heart issue, and, and for us, my, my wife and I just decided this old discipline of, of 10% is going to be the, base, the baseline of what, what we're going to do to honor God with. And we're going to, for, for us, the, to, to give it to the body of Christ and this local expression of the body of Christ, which is Desert City for us, because for us, Desert City is this place of experiencing the presence of God. There's this communion with God's presence, this relationship that we have. Uh, there's, there's spiritual formation that takes place here. There's life-giving community. There's a mission that flows out of this church to this community and the city and this world. And from those different acts of the church, we are connecting with people that we'll be connected with for all of eternity. And so as we give we know there's this fruit that we will experience with this kingdom that we belong to. I'm a millennial. I always joke about that because I'm barely a millennial. I was born in 1982. My wife is older than me. She's Gen X. So we say we're an intergenerational couple. It's kind of fun. One of the big, uh, yeah, what, I mean, there's all sorts of criticisms for millennials. We know that. Um, but in the church world, it's that millennials won't give. We, won't, we are a generation that's going to drop the ball on this. And the church, you know, who knows what the future of the church is because millennials don't want to give anything. And I have this strong conviction of responsibility. As a follower of Jesus, I am benefiting from generations before me who have picked up the bill so that I could experience life-giving community in the context of church. And so because of that, I have this deep sacred responsibility to, to, to carry the church in a way um, with the faithfulness of our generosity that benefits not only this present time, but also generations that follow us. And as millennials, we're moving into the prime of life. Life's been crazy. But I have this deep sense that as we give, generosity connects us with eternity. And it's a sacred responsibility. And then the last thing is that generosity it makes me more like Jesus because Jesus is generous. God is generous. John 3.16, the most famous verse in scripture for God's soul of the world that he gave his only son. Salvation comes as a gift, something God has given and he gave his life for us. When we give our life to God, when we give when we give our resources to God, when we are rich towards God, we are acting as image bearers that reflect God's heart to the world. And we live in a world that needs generous and compassionate followers of Jesus. As Jesus tells this story, and he talks about there's this way of scarcity and preservation and trying to hold on to possessions, and then there is a way of generosity and kingdom seeking where life is truly found. I want to be a generous people. Our world needs generous people. I want to be rich towards God. I want to be willing to say, here are my treasure, my talents, my time, all for you. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you so much for your word, for your grace, for your love. Lord, when we hear your word, we know that you desire the best for us. And around a topic such as our resources and our possessions and wealth, we're reminded, Lord, that you you don't need those things. You're fine without them. But it's so easy to allow our hearts to get captured by it. And you offer us warnings. And you offer us a better way. You call us to a life of generosity. And Lord, these are words that are challenging to hear for many reasons. We come from different places, different backgrounds, different, or different points in our journey. For some, Lord, the, the, the topic of money has been an issue of uh, where we've been wounded and controlled and even um, had abusive language around it. For others, it's a, uh, something that um, they've never experienced peace with or abundance with. So there's fear and anxiety. Lord, we acknowledge these are all very real emotions. And yet you invite us to a life where we say we want to give back to you. That we recognize that these possessions are all gifts. Lord, that we'd be in tune with our neighbors who are in need. Lord, that we would be in tune with the mission that you've placed in our life to be good stewards of our resources. Lord, that in your economy, the economy of your kingdom, which is different than the economy of this world, true life is found not by consumption, but by generosity. We thank you for your son who you gave so generously. Lord, we ask that we would be a generous people. In your sons, let me pray. Amen.